Hi and welcome to the St Saviour's Finsbury Park podcast. Our vision is to be a church alive in God's love to serve the city. And we hope this teaching helps you to know God and serve him more wherever you've been uniquely placed. Let's jump in. Harry, with everything you've got, but we're hungry. And so I just want to say, Harry, we, we don't want you to rush at all. Please take your time and deliver that which you've got. We're going to wait. If you need to go, obviously to slip out quietly. Um, but my encouragement is to remain and to, and to lean in. Just a few practicalities before we begin. If you're a parent, a carer, or a guardian, we don't have the slide that that would usually remind you at midday that you are then responsible for your kids. We've got quite a number of kids over at the vicarage. We're not panicking, uh, but but they would really appreciate it if you have a little precious person over there. Please just keep an eye on the time and go and collect them at midday. Feel free to use the garden, the trampoline. The barn will also be open. We have an AstroTurf down and some balls to kick around in there or other stuff. Um, Or come in here with your little people. We don't mind a bit of noise, but um, please... Please, 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 can I ask you at midday, if you are responsible for them, please go and pick them up. Otherwise, um, I will get emails in my inbox at matt.tinsley at stsavers.church this week. Um, Otherwise, Harry, let me pray for you, my friend. Lord, we thank you that when the spirit moves, um, everything goes out the window, including timings. I pray that Harry would feel completely free to just deliver that which you put on his heart this morning, that you would soften our hearts to receive it, and that we wouldn't be clock watching or thinking grumbling. But we would just say, Lord, thank you for what you're doing this morning. We bless you, Harry, in the name of Jesus. We love you, mate. We're for you. Go for it. Amen. Bit of feedback there. Um, Good morning, everyone. And if we've not met before, um, my name is Harry, and I've been part of the St. Saviour's family for the past two years or so. Um, And this morning, we're continuing our teaching series titled Redemption, um, where we are journeying through the Easter story together exploring how the biblical narrative finds its fulfillment in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as Chris explained last week, the aim of the series is to help us to see the Easter story afresh, to see how it knits together so many of the different themes that run through the scriptures, to see how it reveals who Jesus is, and finally to see how it impacts our lives in a multitude of ways. And ultimately, um, we hope that this series will lead us to see how God's redemptive plan for all of creation finds its climax in the cross of Christ. And each week we'll be exploring the Easter story through a different thematic lens. Hopefully the slide's going to work. There we go. Um, So last week, Chris kicked off our series by exploring how Jesus' journey to the cross began in the wilderness. Next week, we're going to start to unpack um, what actually happened on the cross But for today, our focus is on who God's agent of redemption is. Who is the Messiah? See what I did there? Um, And this is another beautiful painting from our very own Pete Anderson, who's at the back. Yeah, go on. Um, And the plan for today is that we're going to work through a passage from Mark's Gospel, line by line. Um, And as I go, I'm going to point out three questions that the passage is asking us to reflect on. So firstly... It's asking us, who do we say that Jesus is? Secondly, is Jesus the king in your life? And thirdly, what kind of king is he? So that's the trajectory we're on. Is everyone all right with that? What brilliant feedback that was. (laughs) Um, Cool, before we dive in, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the words that we're about to read in Scripture. Thank you for your son, Jesus. We pray that as we open your word, 
you will open our minds and hearts to see you more clearly so that we can know and experience more of you. I pray that you will challenge us to reflect on what it means to know that you are the king in our lives. In your name. Amen. All right then, let's get stuck into the passage. Um, So this, if you've got a Bible, this is Mark 8, starting at verse 27, but it will all be on the screen, so you're all good. Okay, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is the word of the Lord. And now, before we get stuck into the passage, I was going to share a story of Naomi and I's honeymoon, um, uh, but I'll jump through it. The, the, The very short version of the story is that um, when we went on our honeymoon, um, we were afraid that some of our uh, friends from home would prank us by breaking into our flat and doing some kind of mischief. Now, uh, they didn't. Um, we got home from our honeymoon. Um, there were no uh, baked beans in the bath, no cling film over the toilet, no tea bag in the shower head. Um, but as we rolled on um, into the first week in our flat, we started to have some awkward interactions with our neighbours. Um, uh, <laughs> oh, that's so bad. Um, we kind of they, we'd have a few odd stares, and then as we were moving in, they would say, "Oh, like oh, hi, are you are you Naomi and Harry?" Even though we had not told anyone um, what we were called, we just couldn't quite work out what was going on. Um, and then one day we had a knock on the door from a lady. Let's call her Janet, and she said, "Is the kettle on?" And I was like, well, what, do you, what do you mean, is the kettle on? Like, maybe I've left it on, I don't know. Um, she asked again, like, Harry, is, is, the, is the kettle on? Um, and I was really confused, I didn't know what was going on. Um, anyway, I invited her in and we had a, like, actually a really nice chat. Um, and after a while I plucked up the courage to say, like, why are you here? And, <laughs> and who are you? And most importantly, how do you know my name and my address? Um, anyway, she said she got her, she got, um, quote, our lovely little note in the post. (laughs) Now I was really suspicious. Um, So I immediately phoned our friends and asked them, what had they done? Oh? This is what they had done. They had dropped this note, this really embarrassing note, out to all of uh, everyone in our neighbourhood. Take a moment to just breathe in the aesthetic horror of it. Um, For those of you of a kind of more designer, kind of design... I don't know. You, you appreciate design. Just think. Of, look at that font that they've chosen. Um, here's what it says. Hello, neighbour. We, Harry and Naomi, have just got married and moved into the community. We'd like to invite you around for a quick cuppa. That's a phrase I would never use. Um, to get to know you, feel free to drop round anytime and we'll, here's the quote, pop the kettle on. Anyway, um, what our friends had done is that they had created this 
this moment where they knew that I would find it Im immensely embarrassing that someone would rock up and I'd have no idea who they were. Um, and what's the link to today's passage? Well, nothing at all. Um, no, the fairly loose connection is that our neighbours had been told about us before we arrived. They had an expectation of what we might be like, but when they finally did meet us, it turned out we were quite different to what they were expecting. And in the same way, we've just read that Peter and the disciples were expecting this figure called the Messiah. But when he did show up, he was a different Messiah to the one they had been told about. So let's dive back into the passage. If you turn with me to verse 27, we read this. Jesus and his disciples went onto the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do, you, who do people say I am? And before we go any further, it's important for us to take note of where this scene takes place. So as we just read, we're in a place called Caesarea Philippi. You can see it on the map here. And Caesarea Philippi is a good deal north. It's 25 miles north of Galilee, where Jesus and his disciples have spent the first two years of his ministry. Now clearly, Jesus had a very specific reason for taking his mates on a 50-mile round trip. Um, and Caesarea Philippi was famous for having a large marble temple where people would worship local gods. So originally, it was the temple to the Greek god Pan, who was a kind of half-man, half-goat dude. Imagine Mr. Tumnus from Narnia. Um, but in Jesus' day, it had been given by King Herod, so remember Herod from the Christmas story, um, to his son Philip on his 16th birthday, which is a pretty good present. I got a ukulele on my 16th birthday, so step it up, mum and dad. Um, and Philip decided to make it a temple to Caesar Augustus. So here's a reconstruction of it. And in fact, the whole city got renamed in honour of the emperor. And that's why it's called Caesarea for Caesar and Philippi for Philip. And now, history lesson over, the only bit that you need to remember is that Caesarea Philippi was the centre of emperor worship in Israel. As one commentator puts it, the whole city existed to declare that Caesar was king. Um, keep a mental note of that, it'll be important later. Okay, so we're up to speed with the location, let's pick up where we left off. Um, so as Jesus and his disciples are walking near Caesarea Philippi, he asks, who do people say I am? And this isn't Jesus um, having an, an identity crisis. He's not feeling a bit self-conscious or fishing for compliments. He want, he's asking whether they understand who he really is. The disciples report that some people think he's John the Baptist, back from the dead. Others think he's Elijah, the great prophet from the Old Testament. What they're saying is this. They're saying Jesus is a great teacher, a prophet, perhaps one of the greatest prophets, but not the Messiah. And then Jesus takes a more direct approach and asks, who do you, Peter, James, John, probably didn't do all 12 names, who, who do you think that I am? And now, interestingly, this question is actually the key that unlocks the whole of Mark's gospel. And that's because Mark has specifically arranged his biography of Jesus so that this question sits at the very centre of his account. So if you'll nerd out with me for a second. Um, if we look at the structure of Mark's gospel, we can see that it's a drama that takes place in two acts. The first act takes place in Galilee, and there we see Jesus perform miracle after miracle. He calms the storm, he feeds the 5,000, and heals the blind. And after each miracle, the crowds can't work out who he is. So when he calms the storm, one of his, the disciples say, who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. It's like the whole of Act 1, from chapters 1 to 8, is this giant question mark asking, who is this guy? 
The second act, Act 2, takes place in Jerusalem, and there Mark describes Jesus' journey to the cross, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. In other words, the second act gives us the answer to who Jesus is and what he came to do. So sandwiched, see what I did there? Right in the middle of these two acts, at the very centre of Mark's gospel, um, is this passage in Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And Mark has done this deliberately because he wants us, the audience, to wrestle with that question ourselves. So that brings us to our first reflection question, which is, who do you say that Jesus is? And this question is really important for us to wrestle with because there are lots of different versions of Jesus out there today. For some people, Jesus was just a historical figure, an outspoken Jewish rabbi who had some radical ideas that got him murdered. For others, Jesus is kind of a generic force of love who had nothing really to say about sin or justice. For lots of people, Jesus is more like a ticket to the good place when you die, more like a divine get-out-of-jail-free card than someone to have a relationship with. There's lots of different versions of Jesus out there. And so we need to honestly ask ourselves, have we wrestled with the person of Jesus? Do we really know who he is? Um, But more than that, our answer to that question will massively shape our understanding of redemption. If Jesus was just a human teacher or an ancient life coach, like a sandal-wearing version of Stephen Bartlett, um, then his death was a tragedy, but nothing more than that. But if Jesus is who he says he is, the Messiah who came to save us from sin and reconcile us to God, then his death and resurrection will turn our lives upside down. As Jesus himself says in John's Gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we can't really go any further in our journey of faith without wrestling with this first question of who Jesus is. Okay, we've done one verse. Let's move on. Um, (laughs) And that's towards our our second question, which is, is Jesus the king in your life? I'm just going to take a sip of water, so give give me a second. Okay, so we've seen Jesus ask his disciples who they think he is. And in verse 29, we see Peter give ostensibly the right answer. He says, you are the Messiah. It's almost as if Peter's eyes have been opened and he's seeing Jesus as he truly is for the first time. And this is super interesting because this passage um, uh, comes directly after a story of Jesus healing a blind man. Um, You can read about it from verses 22 to 26, and this isn't an accident. Mark has specifically put these two stories together, a story of a blind man receiving his sight and a story of Jesus seeing, um, uh, Peter seeing Jesus as he is on purpose to show us that this is the moment the scales fall from Peter's eyes and he realises exactly who Jesus is. It's important for us to pause here and spend a bit of time thinking about what this word Messiah means. And I think it's one of those kind of Christianese words, like the phrase in this season, which Matt said two times earlier. It's one of those phrases that we say a lot, but I don't, if we, don't know if we really know what it means. And I think for a lot of us, we assume it means hero or saviour. One example of this is a terrifying kids' worship song called Jesus, You're My Superhero. Does, does anyone know it? Um, it's a real song. <laughs> um, it's got 12 million views on YouTube, so it's doing something, right? Um, it's got this amazing music video of Jesus flying around like, a, like Superman. Um, the chorus goes, Jesus, you're my superhero. You're better than Spider-Man, better than Superman, better than Batman, better than anyone. 
Um, now, don't get me wrong, I don't want to hate on the song. It's for kids, remember? And it's trying to say that Jesus is so much greater than the heroes we grew up hearing about. So in some ways, it's a modernized version of Hebrews. It landed better than I thought it might. Um, okay, but anyway, the sentiment um, is kind of on track. But to see the Messiah as a hero is to miss out on what Jesus is actually telling us. So what does Messiah actually mean? Um, well, literally, um, Messiah is all about oil. Messiah is a Hebrew word, which means anointed one, or more specifically, the one who is anointed with oil. And actually, the word Christ, as in Jesus Christ, is just the Greek translation of this Hebrew word Messiah. So Christ, or Christos, means Messiah, which means anointed one. Um, And sadly, that means that Christ isn't Jesus' surname, which is what I always thought. He wasn't Jesus, son of Mary Christ. Um, If he was a primary school teacher, he wouldn't be called Mr. Christ. No, Christ is actually a a title, which means anointed one. And that's why Pete's painting for this week is of a jar of anointing oil. And this idea of anointing comes from the Old Testament, where we see Israel's kings being set apart by having oil smeared on their heads. But if you continue to read through the Old Testament, you'll see that God promises a day where he will one day send a final king, a final anointed one, a Messiah, who will make everything right. This king would defeat Israel's enemies, bring God's justice and peace on earth, and bring an end to sin and suffering. And if you're joining us on the redemption plan for this week, um, you're going to go on a journey through those promises um, from Monday through to Friday. The big problem, though, is that if you've read through the Old Testament, you'll know that this king actually never turns up. The Old Testament ends on a massive cliffhanger as the people of God wait for the true king to arrive. It's like the whole thing ends on this giant ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. That's until we get to our passage today where Peter says, you are the Messiah. You are the long-awaited king. Uh, And this brings us to the second reflection question, which is, is Jesus the king in your life? Where does Jesus rank in the hierarchy of things that really matter to you? Um, And this is really challenging for us because we live in a world of competing kings, in a world where other things claim to be more important to us than Jesus is. And this would have been even more clear to Jesus' disciples because they actually already had a literal king. In fact, they had two kings. We met them earlier. King Herod, who titled himself King of the Jews, and Caesar, Emperor Augustus. And it's really hard for us to get our heads around just how all-conquering the Roman Empire was in this period of time. In the first century, the Roman Empire stretched from Portugal in the west to Scotland in the north to Egypt in the south to Israel in the east. And... Of all the people throughout history, Caesar Augustus is like genuinely the person who could say he was king of the world as much as like anyone has ever done. So he's kind of getting there. And so for Jesus to call himself the Messiah, the true king, is like political dynamite. He's saying, I am the true king and Caesar isn't. As N.T. Wright puts it, calling Jesus the Messiah, in other words, the, the true king, means that Herod and Caesar are shabby little imposters. Or as John Mark Comer puts it, Jesus is the reality to which all other kings are just a parody. And if you remember back to where we started, this is why Jesus chooses Caesarea Philippi, the city with the huge temple dedicated to Caesar Augustus, to tell his disciples that he is the Messiah. Jesus is using his surroundings to ask them, who do you think the true king is? Is it me or is it Caesar? 
Unfortunately, we don't live in a society where actual tyrannical kings ask us to bow down. But that doesn't mean there aren't things in our lives that don't compete with Jesus to be king. If I'm really honest with myself, I know there are, there are times where I don't even treat Jesus as though he even exists, let alone king in my life. I know that over and over again, I end up making um, my job or my desire to be successful or my need for wealth and comfort or for people to like me to be more important than Jesus is. So what would it look like for us to surrender and say, Jesus, you are the king of my whole life? Okay, we're entering the home straight now, I promise. Um, And we're moving towards our final question, which is, well, we've learned that Jesus is the Messiah, the king, but now we need to wrestle with a more complicated question, which is, what kind of king is he? And this is where we reach the twist in the story, because as we'll see, Jesus and Peter have very different ideas about the kind of king that Jesus has come to be. So let's pick the story back up from verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and rebuked him, and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns. So Jesus is saying that the Messiah, the King, needs to suffer and die in order to bring about redemption. Now, as a general rule, rebuking Jesus isn't a great idea, but you can see how Peter would be confused by what Jesus is saying. He believes that the Messiah is going to ascend the throne. As we've already learned, most first-century Jews believe that the Messiah would look like a warrior king, who would come and crush the Roman Empire and usher in a new age of God's rule. By definition, then, the Messiah should be a winner. As Tim Keller puts it, the notion that the Messiah would suffer made no sense at all, because the Messiah was supposed to defeat evil and injustice and make everything right in the world. How could he defeat evil by suffering and dying? That seemed ridiculous, impossible even. Or as the historian and theologian Nick Page puts it with a fairly uh, heavy dollop of irony, uh, Jesus failed his messianic exam in every module he took. Just how wrong a messiah was he? So if Jesus wasn't going to ascend the throne as a victorious king in the way that Peter expected, what did he mean by saying he was going to suffer and die? What Jesus is doing is deliberately echoing a passage from the prophet Isaiah who, writing 700 years before Jesus, described a figure called the suffering servant of God. Let's quickly read a section from it now. So Isaiah writes this. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. Surely he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. In other words, this promised servant is the one who will achieve God's plan for redemption, and he will do it through his own obedient suffering and sacrificial death. Now we read this, and knowing what happens to Jesus, it seems pretty obvious that it's about Jesus, right? I mean, like, how did Peter miss it? But 
remember, the Israelites believed that the Messiah would be a victorious king. Um, so they never really connected the Messiah and the suffering servant together. Most first century Jews believed that these were actually two different representative figures. But Jesus changes that. He brings the two together and he says, yes, I am the Messiah, I am the king, but I'm not the king you were expecting. I'm also the suffering servant and I'm going to suffer and die on your behalf to bring you healing and forgiveness. And notice that Jesus doesn't say he will die, but that he must die. He's saying that his suffering isn't an accident or God's plan gone wrong. No, Jesus is saying that it is through his voluntary suffering that God's plan for redemption will be achieved. As the theologian Rebecca McLaughlin puts it, Jesus isn't risking crucifixion by his claim to be the Messiah. He's planning on it. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Notice in verse 31 that he doesn't actually say that the Messiah has come to die, but he uses this particular title. He says, the Son of Man has come to die. And we can't dig into that in too much detail, although I'd love to in the time that we've got. Um, But in short, um, the Son of Man is a reference to the prophet Daniel, who has a vision of this guy called the Son of Man, who was, and it's quoted at the bottom of the slide there, given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. In other words, the Son of Man is the one who sits on the heavenly throne as the king and establishes God's kingdom on earth. So Jesus isn't just saying that he's a king who must suffer, but actually that it is through his suffering and death that he will become exalted as the world's true king. As Dr. Tim Mackey puts it, Jesus' execution is actually his exaltation. Or in the symbolic language of Revelation, the one sitting on the throne in heaven is the lamb who was slain. So what does that all mean for our final reflection question, which is what kind of king, what kind of messiah is Jesus? And, and if the band would like to start making their way to the front, I'd like to land with three short reflections on this question. Firstly, it means that you can know that Jesus is a king who loves you because he voluntarily went to the cross to bring you redemption. As John puts it in his first letter in the New Testament, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Could you say the same for the other things in your life that claim to be king ahead of Jesus? Could you say the same for your work or your sense of status? Secondly, it means that Jesus isn't a distant, unapproachable king, hidden away in some throne room where you'll never meet him. No, he's a king who humbled himself by drawing near and joining us in the mud and the dirt and experienced suffering with and for us. And finally, it means that Jesus is a king that we can freely submit to or surrender to because he gave up everything for us. Thinking back to that challenge of whether or not we can make Jesus king in our own lives, the cross shows why we can trust him as our king. Again, Tim Keller puts this really well. Jesus is not just a king, he's a king on a cross. If he were just a king on a throne, you'd submit to him just because you have to. But he's a king who went to the cross for you. Therefore, you can submit to him out of love and trust. This means coming to him, not negotiating, but saying, Lord, whatever you ask, I will do. 
When someone gives himself utterly for you, how can you not give yourself utterly to him? Now, I appreciate we've been through a lot of content, but ultimately it all boils down to this. Jesus is saying that he is the Messiah, the true king sent by God to bring us redemption, and that he achieves this by dying in our place. What matters next is how we respond to the question he asked his disciples and is still asking us today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Will we, like Peter, deny that this is the Jesus we really need? Or will we, like the blind man, open our eyes and see Jesus for who he really is? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you've revealed about who you are this morning. Thank you that you are the Messiah, that you are the King who has come to bring redemption. Father, I pray that you will help us to wrestle with what it means that you are the King of all kings. And that you aren't just a king, but a king on a cross. Would you open our eyes to understand the depths of your love for us, revealed to us in Jesus. Amen. Amen.